Would you pray with me? Father, we are people who are in need of healing. We are people who are in desperate need of the light of Christ. So we pray for that light. We pray for that healing. Give us repentant hearts. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So I'm a naive guy. I was a homeschooled only child, so the way of naivete, if you'll pardon my French, was set before me. And so I like to approach the Bible in a fittingly and appropriately naive way. I like to read the Bible with this assumption that the people who wrote it were clever, and they did things on purpose to make points, even all the way down to the details. And I like to assume that the God who's underneath that, who's inspiring that, who's driving that, also clever, and also doing things intentionally to make a point, to communicate something. So I want to look at some of those details today in our reading from the Gospel of Matthew. I want to start with this quotation that Matthew gives us from Isaiah 9. He says, the people who are dwelling in darkness. Matthew makes a big deal out of the fact that Jesus starts his ministry in Galilee. Matthew sees this as this fulfillment of a prophecy that's given in Isaiah 9. But it's worth taking a look at why exactly this matters. And what is it about this area and the people who live there that makes it an area full of people dwelling in darkness? So this area, Galilee, that was given to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, is the kind of northernmost part of Israel. So it's one of the furthest places away from Jerusalem, the sort of political and historical center for the people of Israel. They're mostly insignificant tribes. They don't show up a whole lot in the Old Testament story. You see a little bit in Judges where they do some stuff with Gideon and with Deborah, but not a whole lot. But more importantly even than that, it's a place that's generally thought of as spiritually distant because they are far from the temple. They're far from God's dwelling place. And not only are they far from that, but they're also close to Israel's pagan neighbors. And that proximity to Israel's pagan neighbors can leave them really vulnerable to adopting the ways of those neighbors, vulnerable to idolatry, vulnerable to following or taking up the worship of those gods. And so in Jesus' time, it was a place that was still considered to be kind of loose with, with the law, influenced by paganism or accommodating to paganism or Gentile ways, less pure. You can see this attitude, actually, in John. Um, there's a time when the some of the lawyers, scribes, Pharisees are arguing about who Jesus is. Um, someone says something that might even be a little bit positive. And here's the comeback. Oh, are you from Galilee too? Like Jesus of Nazareth, a.k.a. are you an idiot? Because no one good comes from there. Look and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, it's kind of dumb because actually there were prophets that came from Galilee. Two classic ones, Nahum and Jonah. And just as an aside, because we're, we're assuming naively that all the details matter, those are two prophets that actually get little miniature shout-outs or echoes in this story. So you can see the word that Nahum, the prophet Nahum's name, comes from at the end of Capernaum. Capernaum. It's kind of embedded in there. And then the one that really got me, like you can't make this stuff up, Jonah. We're going to look in just a few verses at these people that Jesus calls who are fishermen. They're men who catch fish. Jonah is a man who's told to carry a message of repentance to Nineveh. He's not a man who catches fish. He is a man who gets caught by a fish 
and who himself learns how to repent after being caught by the fish and then goes and preaches repentance. It's, you can't make stuff up, up like this. Like, it's hilarious. But Matthew weaves both of those things in there. Connected, though, to all this idea of darkness is a history that's dark in the area of Galilee because that region is one of the first to be taken off into captivity when the Assyrian invaders come in the 700s B.C. So this combination of spiritual distance, a rough history, this is why Isaiah spoke of them as people who were held in contempt, people who were looked down on, people who dwelt in darkness and in need of a great light. Now Matthew, when he quotes this from Isaiah, actually does something that's really interesting. Again, we're assuming that he's doing things on purpose, not making just mistakes or accidents. So the word that you see in Matthew 4 um, that gets translated as dwelling, the people who are dwelling in darkness, in Isaiah, Isaiah doesn't say dwelling. He says walking. The second word that you see that says dwelling, they're dwelling in this region of um, shadow of death, and that they're going to see a great light. That's a word that in Isaiah does mean dwelling, but it's going to be a different one. Matthew is going to take both of those words and replace them with the same word, another word that can mean dwelling, but it can also just mean sitting. And so Isaiah is making a very deliberate, intentional move to paint a picture of people who are not walking around in darkness, not just sort of like camped out in darkness. They're stuck in it. They're immobilized in darkness. They are paralyzed, and they can't move because darkness has consumed them. And it's beautiful to see that Jesus begins his ministry by proclaiming the kingdom of heaven at a place like this, a place with a history of people just being real bad and getting smashed up for it, a place that doesn't seem to have a lot of spiritual hope, a place where if you were going to hear that the kingdom is coming, a place that's going to hear a message of repentance is more likely to expect that judgment is going to fall on them than that salvation is coming. This is going to get amplified even a little bit more when we look at the disciples. So look at these fishermen that Jesus calls to be disciples. Remember, they're in a land that's not known for its faithfulness. They're in a land that's known for its unfaithfulness. And look at what Jesus calls Simon and Andrew. He says, I will make you fishers of men. Now, we're used to hearing those words in a really positive light. Because we, we, we assume, okay, Jesus is calling them to call others to repentance, and they're going to call other people to salvation. We make, like, cute little nursery rhymes out of it, like, I will make you fishers of men. This imagery shows up a couple of times in the Old Testament, and it's not actually anywhere nearly so positive. So actually, Amos 4, we just read Amos 3 um, a couple minutes ago. The next chapter, Amos, not a prophet from Galilee, but one who does preach to the north, is given this prophecy to the neighbors of Galilee, kind of on the other side of the Jordan River. And here's what he says. This is a message to people who have been called to repent but have not repented. He says in Amos 4.2, The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. They're not being dragged away with fish hooks to salvation. And if you think about this imagery from the perspective of a fish, you know that no fish has ever been clutched, snatched out of the water, and screamed, I'm saved, thank you. Like, it's, it's a time of turmoil. The fish feels like it's under judgment. And that's what the imagery originally pointed towards. So again, you've got people in a place whose history just screams of unfaithfulness and darkness. 
whose history suggests that judgment is much more likely to come than salvation or deliverance or exaltation. And you have Jesus proclaiming a message that the kingdom is at hand, using imagery that sounds a lot like judgment because it sounds like people being plucked up into judgment when this kingdom comes. So I think that it's likely if you were around, you knew that history, and you heard Jesus saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then using imagery that sounds like judgment like this, you would be really concerned as to what was going to happen next. First of all, you'd want to know, is this guy for real? You'd want to know, is judgment coming? And if it is, how do we get on the right side of it? What would it mean for us to be on the right side of this judgment? So again, naive assumption that Matthew is doing things on purpose. I think that there is a reason that verses 23 through 25 get coupled with this part of the passage. And it's actually the same reason that Jesus is always tying these healing, these healings or these casting out of demons to his preaching and to his teaching. What Jesus is showing through the things that he's doing here in verses 23 through 25 is that the Messiah has come to establish his rule and to establish his reign. But the power that he's showing through these healings through casting out demons, doesn't portray his kingdom as one of judgment or destruction. For the ones who are brought to him, his kingdom looks like healing, looks like salvation, or like deliverance. When he casts out demons, he's proclaiming, not just proclaiming, though, he's showing in a very visible and tangible way that he has authority over spiritual powers. When he heals and restores bodies that are broken, He is showing in a way that's visible and tangible that he has authority over everything that is physical, over the material. All of it, again, done in visible and tangible ways, so there's no mistaking what kind of kingdom that it is. He's coming to bring salvation and deliverance. Doesn't have to be judgment. But there is a pivot point, right? Same pivot point that's run through every example that Matthew has kind of woven underneath this story. Right? We talked about Amos. The same repentance that Amos called for from these people's ancestors, but that they rejected and paid the price for it. It's the same repentance that Jonah preached to the people in Nineveh. They received it and were delivered. It's that repentance that's the sort of movement of the soul from darkness to the light that shines. That's the repentance that Jesus is calling for when he says, repent. Kingdom is at hand. And what I think is so beautiful, too, about this passage is that just like there's a visible picture of what the kingdom is going to look like in these healings and casting out demons, a picture of a kingdom that brings salvation, you also get a visible picture of repentance because you have people who are sick, who are brought to him. And maybe a better way to think of that is that they are offered to Jesus. It's almost sacrificial, sacrificial language. People who are broken, but who are brought into the presence of Jesus because he's the one who can heal them. He's the one who can make them new. A visible picture of repentance, that pivot point between judgment and salvation. So I want us to end by just meditating for a bit on this picture of repentance and these people who are offering themselves to Jesus and who are being healed. When Martin Luther fixed his 95 theses onto the door in Wittenberg, it's that moment that we consider to be sort of the spark of the Reformation. 
the very first point that he made was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Let's think about that. The Christian life is a life of repentance, not a singular moment or not a life that follows a singular moment of repentance, but a life of repentance, constant, continual, daily repentance. That sounds terrible, especially when we think of repentance as this sort of like constant like mode of self-criticism or just constantly trying to self-improve or tweak our own behavior. That sounds awful. But what we see when we actually take a deeper look at what repentance is, is that it's not just this sort of amending visible behavior. It's not just changing what's on the surface. Repentance is actually a reorienting of all of our desires and of our affections. It's a shift underneath the things that drive what we do. Now, I'm making this out to be good news, but that actually sounds worse, right? So, like, as hard as behavioral adjustment is, actually shifting the things that you love, shifting the the direction of your desires, way harder. Something that I think any of us who have really tried to do that before have come to recognize that we can't actually do. Powerless in front of that. Because our hearts are sick. Our souls are sick. But the same Jesus who healed every one of those that was brought to him also heals the same sickness of the soul. The light shines in the darkness. That's the first thing that it means for his kingdom to be at hand. Now, there is an important difference between these healings that Jesus shows as a picture of the kingdom and that work of the kingdom in the heart. The most apparent one to me is that the healings were fast. This work of the kingdom in the heart is generally really slow. Think of the ways that Jesus paints those pictures. He talks about yeast that slowly leavens a loaf of bread, or you think of a seed that slowly grows into a tree. This work of the kingdom, this healing work that Jesus does in the heart is slow. But that's why the call to repentance is a constant one, not a singular moment in a life that follows it but a life of repentance, because we are constantly having to grow in that, be healed by that, constantly having to adjust our gaze kind of away from ourselves, that inward bent turn that our hearts have, straightening it out so that our eyes are fixed on Christ and not on ourselves. Let's talk about why this call to repent, even the call to repent is good news. It's because if you look honestly you have to recognize that all of the things that we are called to repent from never keep their promises to us. That could be something as obvious as sin, the sin that snares us or that poisons us, but that can also be any of the things that we would set our hearts on for security, whether that's money or power or affirmation. That could be the things that we look to for joy or for pleasure or for satisfaction. All of these things make their own promises of deliverance or salvation, or reward. And every single one of them cheats us on that promise. So the call to repentance is a call to look away from these things that will not do what they say they will do for us. And instead, it's a call to look to the one. That's, that's the, one of the baffling things about repentance, is that it is a call to look away from an infinite number of things, but to look towards only one, and to look to him only for deliverance and for salvation. Jesus calls us to turn from those things because he knows that they won't give us what we need. Because we need him. We need to know him. We need to be found in him. 
We need to love him and to worship him. We need his presence. We need to be fully wrapped up in the love and in the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Jesus doesn't just tell us to turn from those things. He actually heals those places in our hearts where we are bent on looking away from him. Some of the imagery that the Bible uses is that he replaces a heart of stone with a living heart, a heart that beats, that's able in turn to repent more so that he can, in that opening up of the heart, pour in more mercy, which will lead us to more repentance, which will open us up to more mercy. In that sort of, it's not, cycle's not the right word, but in those movements, he grows us. He takes a heart that is dead, a heart that is a waste place, that's arid and dry and brings life where there was death. Jesus is the one who takes that meager, inconsequential, pathetically weak movement of repentance that we can muster and turns it into a heart that flourishes. I said a heart like a, something that we can muster. Even that seed comes from him. Even the seed of repentance is his own. He's the one who shines light in that darkness. Might feel slow, but you can trust him to carry that to completion. So as we finish, look at this picture in verse 23. 24. You see Jesus healing the sick? He will take those places in our hearts that the disease of our sin has twisted and rotted. Think about the sins that would entangle you but that you just can't seem to get away from. Anger or bitterness or jealousy or greed or pornography or anything else. The things that you have vowed over and over again to walk away from but that you keep finding yourself in the things that have actually hardened and twisted and poisoned your heart over time. Those places where you've come to realize that you can't heal yourself. You look at this picture, though, and you can see that you can, in repentance, offer yourself to the one who does heal. Or do you see him heal the ones who have been afflicted with afflictions or with pains? If you look at yourself and you can see that you've been wounded by the sins of others or just by life and a broken world, You had to carry consequences on your body or in your heart for things that other people have done. So Jesus' call to repentance there is not a call to just get over those things or to move past them. And it's definitely not a call to bear responsibility for things that people have done to you. But the call to repent is a call for you to still offer yourself over to Jesus because he is the one who can actually set you free from those things or heal you in those places. You look at the one who casts out demons You see the one who heals those who have been afflicted with seizures? This made me think of either powers of darkness or things like grief, loneliness, depression, despair, any of these sort of like darknesses in the soul that would make you feel like you're no longer steering the ship. These things that make you feel like you are no longer in control of where you are headed, mentally or spiritually or emotionally. None of those things in themselves are sin, but they are things that you can't heal yourself of. And so Jesus' call to repent there is an invitation to look to him in the middle of that darkness because he's the one who heals. Maybe slow healing, yes, but he is the one who heals. You see Jesus healing the paralytics. Have you ever felt trapped or powerless or immobilized by sin or addiction or patterns or habits or just weakness that you can't get out of? But here we see that he heals. Remember how I said that our passage starts with Isaiah talking about people who are immobilized in spiritual darkness? People sitting in darkness, but who will see a great light. People who can't move, powerless to move themselves, paralyzed. Again, assuming that Matthew does things on purpose, 
He starts it with that on purpose, but he ends the story with Jesus raising paralytics to walk, raising the same people who have been immobilized, the same ones who can't move. It's a picture of Jesus setting people free. Jesus' message is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and it doesn't have to run over you, but it can be a place of healing for you, of salvation and deliverance. So in those places where you are stuck or trapped or pinned or hemmed in by darkness, he offers light and healing, pours out his spirit on all of those who offer themselves to him, and his spirit brings life where death used to rule. So the invitation for us is to give ourselves to him in repentance like an offering. Every other thing that we would look to, that we would set our hearts on, will cheat us. But he promises to heal. He promises to make new. Amen.